let me introduce Jeff Davis, who is the president and CEO of Unitas. And let me start out by asking you, so what is microfinance and how does Unitas fit into this ecosystem? Um, thanks. Thanks again for having me here. First of all, can I ask a question of the audience quickly? Is that yeah. all right? Can you guys hear? Started? Is the mic okay. working? Yeah. A little louder? Yeah. Can we get a little louder back there? Is that better? Yeah. Um, how many of you know a bit about microfinance? Raise your hands. How many of you know nothing? How many of you are here because you want to learn more about that? How many of you are here because this is the first course of the year and you always go to everything at the beginning of the year? No one's going to be honest? Oh, there we go. Thanks. Um, okay, so, so that helps. So I'll spend a little bit of time then talking about microfinance and, and what it is. You saw a little bit about, about it there on the video. Um, and that's from a very micro level, the idea. Around the world, most people don't have jobs. There are about 3 billion people in the world that live on less than $2 a day. As a reference point, there are only 6 billion in the whole world. So about half the world lives on less than $2 a day. And most of them work in what's called the informal economy. They sell goat cheese in the market, or they weave baskets and sell them in the market, or they um, sell milk or something. They do make shoes or, or men's shoes, do something to get by informally. And th that makes up the bulk of employment in most parts of the world. In Mexico, it's 65% of the economy, for example. Um, and so that exists. That's just reality. And most of these people who have these small businesses are incredibly cash-constrained, like this woman who needed $35 to almost double her income. $35 seems like not much to, to most of us here, but when she was making $2 a day, coming up with $35, that was quite a lot to try to come up with because that entire $2 a day that she made went to feeding her family. Um, so microcredit, I'm going to distinguish between microcredit and microfinance. Microcredit is an idea, as you heard about, that uh, began about 30 years ago of giving small loans to these type of people, these men and women who are working in the informal economy, to either start a business if they didn't have one, or to grow an existing business. And oftentimes it's refinancing existing credit that they might have from money lenders. And I'll just pause and give a side comment. Money lenders are alive and doing well around the world. And there's almost a cartel in, in uh, money lender rates. And it tends to be about 10% a day. When I first started learning about this, my eyes did exactly what yours did. I, wow. 10% a day, and it's usually called the 10 plus 1. So I'll ask people, or in some places it's even worse. In, in the Philippines, it's called 5-6. That means I give you 5 in the morning, whatever it is, 5 pesos, 5 fish, 5 whatever, and you give me 6 in the evening. So even more, 20% a day. But it's usually 10 plus 1. I'll give you 10 in the morning, you give me 10 back in the evening. 10% a day, 3,000% or 3,000, you know, 650% um, a year, which is incredible interest rate. So oftentimes microcredit uh, loans will refinance that and allow the, the woman or the man who runs a small business to keep the profits from that. So around the world there are programs that have grown up to give these small loans, to give loans to poor people working in the informal economy. There are about, depending on how you count them, three to five thousand of these programs worldwide that are giving small one hundred, two hundred dollar loans to these type of people, um, which is Great. It sounds like a lot, and you saw, you heard uh, the impact on one family's life. The the rub, if you will, or the the opportunity, since we're 
entrepreneurs, or at least wanting to be entrepreneurs, the opportunity is that less than 20% of all people who could benefit from microfinance or microcredit have access to it. So less than 20% market penetration. Um, I'll talk a little bit more uh, a bit later, but this is potentially a $5 billion or $50 billion market, and right now it's about a $1 billion market, so huge growth opportunity. I'll pause there and uh, go on to your next question, but I'll talk a little bit more about the role that our company plays in this space and what we try to do a, a bit later. Okay, well, well, how did you get involved with this? I mean, how did Unitas get started? Um, great, great question. Maybe I'll answer it two ways. You asked how I got involved with this and then how Unitas got started. They're separate but very related. Um, so I, th this is about my, again, depending on how you count it, if you count the little uh, soda pop stand that I had as a kid, I don't know how many, but this is at least my seventh formal startup that I've either done or been a part of. Um, and so I've been doing that for a while. And in college, as an undergraduate, I learned about microcredit and was smitten with the idea, the power of it. It used business principles to do good in the world. The, the loan that I, you saw in the video, the woman paid that loan back completely. It was done at commercial base, on a commercial rate. The interest rate was about a credit card rate. Um, so it was a you know, commercial transaction. And I loved the power and the rigor of that. And then I saw the impact that it had on people's lives. Um, so that was one thing. And then I, I owned a company that I started as an undergrad as well. So the story that you heard me tell in the video was when I, after I graduated from school, I sold that company and it took some money from that and some other money that I put together. And I went to Mexico to start a program, to start an actual microcredit program. I had read about microcredit and done some writing, wrote a senior thesis on it and was you know, all excited about the potential to change the world. Um, and I went to Mexico to see what it was really like. And that was the first loan that we gave that you saw in the video. So that was a bit about my background. Then I, I did that, started the program, turned it over to a local nonprofit, went back into it, worked at a, a biotech startup for a number of years, and then had a chance to go uh, to Washington, D.C. to help get something off the ground called Grameen Foundation USA, which is an outgrowth of the Grameen Bank in Bangladesh. Um, and while I was there, one of my jobs was starting up new microcredit programs around the world, taking the Grameen Bank methodology, which is one of the pioneers in the industry, been doing this for 30 years, very large program in Bangladesh, and replicating that in various parts of the world. Um, and then uh, I also ran the operations of the, the foundation. So I did that for a number of years, and then I did graduate work in development economics and management. At, uh, I was at the Stanford of the East um, for a number of years. And then that, when I was finishing up there, I met who became the person who became my partner in Unitas, Mike Murray, who's the chairman you saw at the beginning of the video. Um, he was based in Seattle. He had been involved in another company, also called Unitas, that was doing something completely different, and, but they had happened upon microfinance and microcredit, and they thought, hey, there's something there. Maybe there's something we can do with this. The other company wasn't going so well and was winding down. They said, why don't we take the infrastructure that we've built um, and morph it into something different? And so Mike and I started talking and said, okay, basically, let, let's do that. Let's start a new microfinance accelerator. It's a new, something we made up. So we'll have to figure out what exactly that means, but let's use the existing legal infrastructure of this other company to be a microfinance accelerator. So I moved from Boston to Seattle about four years ago and uh, to start what is currently Unitas and the Unitas that we'll talk about here, even though it had a previous life. Does that help? Sure. Now, you, you mentioned Grameen Bank, and a lot of us are familiar with Grameen Bank because they go, they give these micro loans 
how different are you from Grameen Bank? Are you doing the same thing or you do fit a different place in this uh, ecosystem? Yeah, great, thanks. Thanks for tossing me the softball question <laughs> um, so I can tell you what we really do. Um, so I mentioned we're a microfinance accelerator and if you remember the problem statement or the opportunity that there's less than 20% market penetration for microfinance. We found as we've analyzed the industry that that's fundamentally because most microfinance programs are very small and they stay very small. So of the three to 5,000 in the world, most of them, about 65% of them serve less than 2,500 clients or 2,500 families or uh, customers. Mm -hmm. um, when the potential in their market area might be 250,000. So they're just, so they're small mom and pop. Sometimes they say it's a 7-Eleven serving <coughs> the local geography when it could be a Walmart or something serving a much bigger area. So we, we saw that, we saw the potential uh, that was there to uh, no, at the same time, there are programs like Grameen Bank with millions. I think the latest number is 4 million clients Grameen Bank has in Bangladesh. There are others who are very, very large. So we knew that scale, defined by the number of clients, was possible, but it wasn't happening. As we looked around the industry and looked at most of the institutions that were 2,500, maybe 3,000 clients, we found that their growth curve started off okay, but then started to level out. And as we analyzed it further, we found that that was because they had internal operating constraints they didn't have the infrastructure to manage large-scale financial institution, and they didn't have the money they needed. So even if you're giving only $100 loans, once you give 1,000 of them, 5,000 of them, 10,000 of them, it still adds up to a lot of money. Um, so they didn't have the, fi the financing they needed. So we created what we call the Unitas Acceleration Model to, it's basically using a venture approach. So if you think early stage venture, that's what we do for microfinance. We want to create the next generation of Grameens. We go and we, we scour the world looking for the programs with the highest growth potential. We find them in, in various countries, wherever they might be, and we invest heavily in their infrastructure and put in place the capital structure they need to dramatically accelerate their growth, to drive 10x growth in five to seven years. Um, so, so that's how we're different. We don't give $100 loans or even $35 loans, like I described there. We give $4 million loans or $1 million loans to the institutions that break them up into small $100 loans to distribute. Interesting. So does that mean there has to be a micro-lending organization already in place? For example, um, a small business or a bank that already does it? And so essentially you, you give them the resources to take it to the next level? That's exactly right. Uh -huh. That's exactly right. Maybe, why don't I give an example that, that would be make, great. makes it concrete? So our, our first partner in India, we do a lot of our work in India. We're currently in Mexico, Kenya, and India, and expanding very soon to Argentina. Um, and a number of other countries that I'm, I'm not allowed to mention yet, but they're, they're coming. Watch our website. Um, but anyway, in, in India, we have an office in India, a small office in India that's growing. We'll have about 10 people there by the end of the year. And we have five partnerships or five uh, portfolio companies in India. The first one that we started working with, we started uh, two and a half years ago, and they had 10,000 clients. And they had grown over five years. They'd grown to 10,000 clients. They had strong management. Uh, good infrastructure and a great market potential, 80 million people that, that could use microfinance in their area. And so we said, wow, let's see what we can do with them. Their long-term growth goal was 100,000 clients. They hoped to get to 100,000 clients. And we put together a plan to help them reach 350,000 clients within five years. And we put together a plan to transform them from a nonprofit institution into a for-profit institution so they could start to access the capital markets, start getting access to the resources that they need to grow 
this dramatically, and we put in place what we call a capacity building plan to build the, the infrastructure and the capacity to manage this type of growth. So that was about two and a half years ago. Um, they were at 10,000 clients. They're now at 120,000 clients in uh, two and a half years, so more than 10x growth in, in two and a half years. The industry grows about 20% a year, just uh, so to give you a, a benchmark, and they're growing at 250% a year or more, um, depending on the year. So that, that's, that's the crux of what we do. We find institutions with that type of potential, latent potential, and we help unlock it, much like a venture, a Sandhill Road venture player might do. So we often hear the saying, doing good as well as doing well. Mm -hmm. So are you doing well? Is this a profitable business? Is this something you'd say, wow, this is something uh, that other people should consider doing? Yes, is the, is the short answer. Um, <laughs> and here's something for those who want to explore this further. This has at least a 30-year history, a 30-year track record. And it was initially started as a development activity, as a way of helping companies or countries or people develop economic development or individual development. And it was a philanthropic activity. It was funded through government sources or philanthropic sources. And that was very important for demonstrating the potential of poor people to repay. I should pause here and say worldwide repayment rates with these programs hover around 97%. 97% repayment worldwide. And there are about 80 million people now, the latest count, who have access to microcredit or a microloan. 97% of them repaying on time every week. So just um, amazing to really become a financial, uh, small financial industry. So that, and proving that that was possible was, was a key role for the early donors, donor dollars and whatnot. But if you go back to the opportunity that I described, 80% market share is just left open there, 80% possibility of reaching uh, these people. That need, it's a $50 billion industry, that need cannot be met with donor dollars. Mm -hmm. And so there's a movement now that Unitas is championing and, and others to say this is now a business opportunity with incredible social impact. So it's a slight nuanced version of this is a development activity that can cover some of its costs if it's designed correctly to saying this is a business opportunity that has incredible social impact, the ultimate double bottom line. So yes, at numerous levels, this is or at least can be profitable. At the small micro bank level, it can be profitable. Those institutions can be profitable. And it's, can, there can be profitable investments into those institutions, which is what we're, what we're doing. Okay, so this all sounds fabulous from this very high level. The story of the woman with the cheese, pasteurized cheese, is pretty compelling. Are there other stories you can tell us that uh, sort of bring this to life? Sure, there, there are millions of them, literally. Um, I can share another, another anecdote, if you will. A, a woman that I met in India, had, uh, she had four sons and a daughter. And, uh, and very, very poor. Her husband was a day laborer. She was married young, had children young. And in order to survive and then pay the dowry for her daughter to be married, she had eventually sold all four of her sons into indentured servitude, sold them into slavery, slavery bonded labor. Um, and hated doing it, but had to survive somehow. So she got her first loan and bought a uh, water buffalo, basically like a milk cow. And she milked the cow and sold the milk. And then after that, she paid that loan off. She bought another cow, or another uh, water buffalo. And eventually built up enough uh, profits to buy back her sons 
one by one. And when I had met her, she had just bought back her fourth son, bought them out of bonded labor. So uh, how do you measure the impact of that on the family? Wow. Um, just stupendous. And there are mil literally millions of stories like that around the world. Wow. So what have been the biggest challenges you faced? I mean, obviously, building any business has some hurdles. Sure. Um, one of the biggest challenges we've faced uh, is coming into an established industry that's been successful, that's been, uh, this is the year, the U UN declared 2005 the year of, of microcredit or microfinance. So it's been successful, it's done incredible things, it's helping millions of people around the world. Coming into an industry like that that's doing incredibly well and doing incredible uh, work in the world to say, this can be done better, this can be done differently and trying to show a different perspective, trying to show a, a different possibility of this, which is what we're trying to say, that if, if this were to be converted and viewed as a business with an incredible social impact, mm -hmm. then not millions would be helped, but billions can be helped. And so the first time I started giving speeches and talking to people in the industry and talking about what we wanted to do, um, some of it was met with skepticism. Some of them were saying, oh, why hadn't we ever thought about it like that before? Um, and now, so just going around trying to kick up dust and trying to show that things can be done differently uh, with all the, the inevitable uh, friends that, that smile with one hand and you know, get ready to tap, stab you in the back with the other hand. Yeah. Um, that, that's been one of the challenges. Um, let me describe a little bit about what we've been able to accomplish. We've been doing this for about four years. We have a portfolio of seven partnerships right now around the world. They're collectively reaching almost 500,000 clients in four years, um, they'll hit that. If they haven't hit it soon, they'll hit it within the next couple of weeks. 500,000 clients. They collectively employ about 1,200 people. They've got a, assets of $40 million, et cetera. So just very, very quickly, we've established scale. And as a counterpoint, that, that may be fine, you say, but how many do they have when you started working with them? When we started working with these seven portfolio companies, they had 225,000 clients. Um, so again, a, a doubling um, effect uh, very rapidly. So trying to do that and trying to show that it's been different um, can, or can be different, coming in as a new kid on the block, um, you know, people say, well, you, you're arrogant or you haven't thought about this, or you haven't thought about the implications of that, or you're ignoring a third-year track yeah. record. Uh, so some of that has been challenging. Yeah. If you were to do it over again, are there any things you would do differently? Um, I think I would be more aggressive. More aggressive. Yeah. We, we, we are ahead of my expectations in terms of what we've been able to achieve. And, and I think um, thinking, thinking 10 times bigger uh -huh. and the work to, to achieve that is often not 10 times harder. And so I think uh, we thought we were thinking big then. I think I would, I would think bigger and be more aggressive. Great. I want to give you guys a heads up that in just a couple minutes, I'm going to open up the discussion for you. <coughs> and you uh, will be able to ask questions directly. And when you do that, uh, there are microphones in front of you that you pick up and hold down the little button on the top. So in just a couple minutes, so it'll give you a little bit of time to think about what questions you have. So here we have this room of these incredibly talented students. And you know, it was only a few years ago that you were a student. What sort of advice do you wish you had gotten when you were their age and sitting in auditoriums listening to speakers uh, that would have helped you now? That wasn't on the prep sheet. That wasn't on the prep sheet. I, just, <laughs> I look around. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. Um, I think one thing uh, 
I'm going to answer, I'm just going to say what I would say to you is I'm sure you all feel something deep in your gut that you can make a difference. You can do something great in the world somehow, whether it be through technology or through health or whatever your, your specialty is. Probably a lot of technology here in the engineering department. But you feel like you've got something, um, that you've got great, uh, great intellect, you've had a uh, strong upbringing, you're getting a great education here, and you feel like there's something that you can do. And I'll just say, you're right. You can do it. Believe it. If you could fast forward 10 or 20 years down the road and then look back at yourself, say, yeah, I'm going to do it. And then set your sights high and, uh, and go for it. That, sounds like, may, that might sound like a lot of fluff, um, but just with the, the grit and the ingenuity that this valley is known for, um, build on that and, and do it. Fabulous. Yeah. So now sitting in your chair, now that you've built this, um, what are your goals going forward from here? I mean, you know, you've got this infrastructure in place, you're having a big impact. Uh, if you look forward five or 10 years, where do you hope to be? Yeah, great, that's a great question. So by the end of next year, we want to have reached one and a half million clients, so an incremental million uh, clients through our, our partnerships. By 2015, just in India, by 2015, we hope to have reached 10 million families, 10 million clients alone just in India, and an additional 5 million outside of India, so 15 million, 15 by 15, um, being impacted by this. But the work that we're doing with our partner that I mentioned in India, where we've helped them grow from 10,000 to 120,000 clients, um, that work is just the first level, the first order of our impact. The second order impact is as we demonstrate that this is possible, that we provide a demonstration effect to what's really possible. And we're aiming to provide that demonstration effect to the industry. We want the industry to think much bigger and say, ah, that, that's a much bigger possibility than we thought about before. We also want the capital markets to no longer view this as a charity, as a, as a development activity, but to view it as a business opportunity. And when we start to do that, when the capital markets start to see this as a place to play, as a place to put their money, the, some of the $2 trillion that circulates the globe every day, some of that will go down to these women selling goat cheese in the market. And when that happens, uh, there'll be an incredible change in the way the world is structured. Um, if I can give a, a vision, if you will, paint, paint a vision for the future. Um, over Christmas, for some reason, I, last year I read the history of Bank of America, which was started in San Francisco. Started in 1905 by an Italian immigrant started to service Italian immigrants, to bank Italian immigrants who were currently, who were then unbankable. And uh, he went door to door in the North End trying to get people to bring their gold from out from under their bed and put it in his bank and talk to them about interest and, and credit and things like this. Um, and it worked incredibly well. He, he started banking the unbanked. Then 1906, the earthquake and the fire happened and a third of San Francisco burned down. All of the banks closed down. He took the, what he had $80,000 in his uh, cash box and he left town. Three days later, he came back. It took the, the formal banks or whatever you call them a month to reopen. He came back three days later with two buckets and a plank. And he went down to the wharf, put those buckets and the plank down with a hand painted sign that said, it's called Bank of Italy then, but he said, Bank of Italy, open for business as usual. 
and people came up and he started giving loans. He said, I only have $80,000, so I'll tell you what, you want a loan from me, go get half of what you want to borrow and bring it here, I'll match it. I'll match anything you can go get from your neighbors, from your friends or whatever. So he turned that 80,000 into 160,000. The North End was the first neighborhood to rebuild after the fire. He said, this is incredible, these people are bankable. You know, this was the era of J.P. Morgan and sort of that type of banking where they wouldn't have thought of banking an Italian immigrant. Um, an Italian immigrant. And uh, so then he opened a branch in San Jose and then expanded throughout California and then throughout the world. And by the 50s was the biggest bank in the world. So I said, that was incredible, what a story. So he, 100 years ago, most of us, I don't know all of your background, most of us wouldn't have been able to get a loan, just common you know, middle class people. Um, and he started that, he started to transform that. And so I started saying, I'm a Bank of America client. I said, well, how many financial products and services do I have? First I added the Bank of America ones, and then I just started adding all of them, counting them up. I stopped at 42. And that sounds like a big number, but I bet you have the same, I bet a lot of us have the same. So college loan, mortgage, if you have a car loan, if you have a credit card, if you have savings accounts, if you have any kind of retirement accounts, it just starts to really add up. And we take those for granted. We don't realize how important car insurance is. Right? It's required here, we have to have it, so we kind of take it for granted. But if we didn't have car insurance, we'd probably slightly unconsciously be a little more cautious or a little more nervous. But what happens when we get in a fender bender? All of a sudden we're out 5,000 bucks. Well, what if we smash up the other car pretty bad? We're out 10,000 bucks. What if we total our car? Then we're out whatever your car costs, $30,000. What if we total the other person's car? Then we're out $70,000. <laughs> what if we have terrible health implications, medical emergency, $100,000, whatever it is, it can add up pretty dramatically. That's just car insurance. Well, that type of insurance doesn't exist for half of the world. Um, and, so that, and that's just one small sliver in that whole financial spectrum. So if I can paint a vision for the future, what we're trying to do is create financial services for the three billion people who are currently left out, which sounds very unglamorous and unsexy, but as you heard from the goat cheese lady story, um, can literally change people's lives. So that's, that's where we want to go. We want to help drive that type of change, and that will literally start to change the way the world works. It's inspiring. And I have many, many more questions if you don't, but I'm looking across the room and I bet you have lots of questions. So I will turn the attention to you. Uh, who has a question? First one here. And please do pick up the mics. Can you say your names too? Hi, I'm Jeff. Um, I was just wondering, where do you see the bank's largest growth potential as far as we would maybe like what that is? Good name, Jeff. Um, <laughs> where's the next largest growth potential for microfinance, you ask? Um, in, in it's actually, I think, in Asia for large-scale microfinance, and that has to do, if you think about this, if it doesn't feel too crass, but you think about it from a market perspective, the poverty density in Asia is much greater, so it's much more efficient and, and quote-unquote, easy to serve large numbers of people. Africa, broad, you know, go from village to village in Africa, it's, it's a, a lot longer distance poverty density or density period, population density, let alone poverty density is a lot lower there, so mostly in Asia. Um, and we, we're doing work in Kenya, we're looking in South Af Southern, Southern Africa, I should say, um, South Africa and a couple of other countries. And West Africa, there's a strong credit union movement from the French, sort of the French, uh, French history, basically. So if you want to talk more That's afterwards, I'd be happy to talk great. some more. Great, Jonathan. Um, really a two-part question, first of all, pre-qualify or qualify the people you're going to loan to? If yes, how do you sort of justify the due diligence 
things that you spend on for such a small sort of loan? Do you get the economies there? And how does that look? Yeah, great question. Um, yes is the quick answer. And the way, the way this works uh, is, first of all, we, we don't give the $100 loans anymore. We work with local institutions that give the $100 loans. And the local institutions, local knowledge, local staff, everything that it would take to, to be effective. And the, pre -quali or the qualification takes place on at least two different levels. The way most of this works, um, I'm tempted to go into a microeconomic answer, which may be a bit too much, but I'll just shortcut it and say that the way most of this works is pushing the decision to make a loan as far down as possible. And so what many programs do is they'll require, so let's say I want to get a loan. They'll say, great, go get four of your other four friends to come and form a group together and, in essence, co-sign for each other's loans. Even though you're, I'm not putting any collateral on the line because I don't have any, I'm co-signing, which means if Tina's going to come with me, I know Tina, and I, know, I trust her. I've watched her in business. I know what kind of person she is, and so we'll come <laughs> together. So actually, we become yeah. the loan officers, and we say, okay, we, as a group of five, uh, sort of say that we vouch for each other. Um, and the reason that's effective is I have a lot more information about Tina than you would if you were the loan officer trying to make the decision. Um, then that's the first level. The second level is oftentimes counterintuitive. Many programs pre-screen applicants to make sure they're poor enough. Instead of the opposite, right? Many go into a normal bank, they want to make sure you have enough assets and everything else. Many programs try to make sure that they're poor enough to qualify for some market reasons because the people who are less poor often have less of an incentive to repay, but also because there's a, this is a two-edged thing. There, there's the business side of things, but there's also the social impact that's trying to be driven. So, great question, Jonathan. Back and back. Hi, my name is Teresa. I was wondering, Jeff, if you could expand a little bit upon some of the criticisms you got going into this business. You mentioned, you know, some naysayers. Can you just kind of expand on a couple points of what they're thinking might go wrong or what things they think you have to consider? Sure. Um, the, the, maybe I'll just focus on the biggest one, and that's on the commercialization of microfinance and, and taking what had traditionally been a development activity and making it a commercial activity. Uh, many people say that well, if you're doing that and you're going to transform a nonprofit microfinance program into a for-profit bank or bank type of program, aren't you just recreating the very, this very system that caused the problem in the first place? And there's a concern that if there's only the profit motive as opposed to the philanthropic motive, um, that if the programs continue to serve the poor, it might be at usurious rates. Um, if they're only out for, to, to make a profit, that uh, that can become onerous on the poor, that it can lead to all wrong incentives and, and things like that. Um, there's another criticism, if you will, that says if, uh, if microfinance is commercial and is to grow through its own profits through retained earnings, there won't be enough retained earnings to grow rapidly enough. So I'll, I'll stop there. There are a lot of extensions to those types of questions. Um, and I'll say the, the first, uh, address the first one um, by saying, as I described earlier, only 20% of the market's currently being reached with, from the, the donor model. There simply is not enough money to reach all the poor people in the world that, that can benefit from this. So just from a purely practical perspective, uh, the business model needs to change if it's going to reach its potential. On the idea of um, 
making money on the backs of the poor or becoming users or whatnot, a number of things are, are starting to happen. Um, first is that there's competition that's starting to, to take place and which helps equilibrium sort of keep the price down basically so that that's one quick answer there, this is, there are a lot more in-depth answers and I'd be happy to talk afterwards if you're interested in some more in-depth answers um, and then the last the, the criticism of can it only grow through its own profits that that may be true but it misses the point that when an institution is a for-profit institution the capital markets can invest so they can get access to debt from the capital markets they can build a cap of an equity base that they can leverage off of, et cetera, so that they, it's not growth through their own retained earnings, it's growth through the capital markets driving the growth. Again, just like the Sandhill Road model. So I'm not, that was probably too surfacey. If you want to talk later, we can talk a bit more. Great. Here we go this side, over here. Um, so the, the role we play is an advisor, coach, consultant, um, and a, a prod. Um, we, we try to prod the thinking and help, help raise the thinking. I'll talk a little bit about how we formally structure our engagements. When we first start working with them, we form a partnership, and we use that term intentionally. And the partnership is to reach a certain growth goal, like the India example is to reach 350,000 clients. Um, that's the, the goal. And there are investment components that we'll bring to that, and then there's the uh, capacity building plan, the growth plan that, you, that you're talking about. We then do a, an institutional diagnostic. We have a, a tool that we've developed to help identify growth constraints in their infrastructure, whether it be management information systems or human resource issues or financial management or internal controls. There, there are about 17 different categories that we look at um, in a great deal of, of depth. And we do this diagnostic uh, test, if you will. It takes about a week, a team of three or four people, and uh, come up with an assessment that if you were to try to go through the type of growth that we're talking about, these would be the pinch points. And we do that collaboratively. It's not imposed. It's through discussions with, with management, with senior management, testing systems, et cetera. And then we agree collectively, sitting on the same side of the table, us and the, the representatives of the institution, Yes, this is what the institution looks like. These are the weak points. If we were to grow, if we were to double, if we were to go 100% in the next year, these are where the pinch points would be. And then we say, here are some things we can do to address that. Whatever it might be, information systems. Here's some information systems that we know about that can be put in place to help uh, fill this need, fill this gap. We agree on what the plan will be, and then we coach and help them as the plan is implemented. Most of the plan gets implemented by them. And on the prodding side, um, we're constantly pushing them to think bigger and to expand their vision. And in essence, when we come and we say we can put together the financing package and we can help put together, build the infrastructure for you to think big, what that, base, what that really does is give them permission to, to think much bigger. So it's not imposed. It's not something we come in and say this is what you have to do. All we try to do is paint the, the picture of the possibility of a, a bigger future. Good. Boy, so many questions. How about back there? Hi, it's not here. In a book, The Fortune's Bottom Pyramid, it talks a lot about this. And is it the reason that the fall rates are so low is because it is at a local level? And there is a lot of pressure by the community to make sure that these programs stay in place 
countries where, or societies where there aren't those strong union ties would compel people to do this, or perhaps in more urban areas where the population is, is more mobile and they aren't those ties either? Yeah, that's a, a great, great observation. Um, the quick answer is yes, again. Um, some of our partners do work in urban areas and do work in other areas where there isn't the strong social uh, ties. I was part of a large program in, in Mexico City. Uh, one of our partners in India is in Calcutta, et cetera. So I, I think you've hit it right on the head. It, and a number of things happen. First of all, sometimes those social ties are created through the process of forming these groups. And so if I, if I don't have a neighbor, if I live in the city and I don't have a neighbor that I know per se, maybe I know the person that, that's a street vendor on the next corner over or something like that. Kind of know them enough that I might want to want to work with them. And through the process of forming a group and having to co-guarantee each other's loans, that creates that social capital, if you will. But there's another, an entirely different side of things where very often in urban areas they'll move to an individual lending model, so more traditional like you and I would get if we went into a bank, still modified and appropriate products for the level we'll talk, we're talking about. But we're, that's sort of the, the next stage. We're seeing that coming now in the evolution of the industry of an individual lending model where the repayment mechanism is not only the social cohesion, but it's also the desire for future capital. So I know if I don't repay, I'm not going to get my larger loan. So if I get a $100 loan, $100 loan today, Six months from now, I want a $300 loan and then eventually a $500 loan. I know I've got to make my payments along the way to do that. So yes, it's a great observation, and, and it's working in some places. It, it also isn't working in some places. It's difficult in some places. Too many but, questions. OK, over here. Uh, I had a question about individual credit rating. How important do you think it is for developing countries to have a unique identification number, like a social security number of sorts, so that individual credit is to another so, um, basically, asking some countries having an individual, like a social security number, like there is here, um, also very insightful question. It's for the long-term growth of the industry. It's very important for an individual program to work, where they can somehow map the, the client and identify the client individually, whether it's where their business is located or something that unique to the individual that's not as important. But for the large-scale potential growth of the industry, it's very important. There started to become um, what they call credit reporting agencies in some countries for microfinance. And this was a theoretical idea that people say, hey, why, to take it to the next level, why don't we create some of these credit reporting agencies? And what you've hit upon is exactly one of the first problems they found. Well, how do we uniquely identify some people? A, in many countries there isn't a system. There isn't some kind of number or unique identifier. And B, when there is, oftentimes the poorest of the poor that we're talking about don't have access to it for some reason. So yes, you've hit on it. Um, and there's still a fair amount of work that needs to be done there. Speak, I'm just speaking globally. In some places, um, in, in Mexico, India, other places, they, they've worked, found some workarounds and some way to do it. Um, but yes, that's the short answer. Right here. Hi, my name is Tom. More generally, what do you think are the opportunities for um, undergraduates or recent graduate students to work in the field of economic development or business economics? Great. Um, another great question. What, what are opportunities for students uh, or recent, like recent grads to, to work in this? There are a lot of opportunities. I'll just say generically. We actually had a Stanford, I don't, I 
don't see him here, but we had uh, someone who's now entering their senior year at Stanford work with us over the summer as an intern um, working on a very specific project. And we take interns every summer. So if you're interested, we'd love to talk with you if you want to, if you want to do some kind of uh, guided study or, or whatnot program. We'd be happy to talk with you about that. There are a number of other programs that do that work in microfinance that we can connect you with. Um, there's a, uh, a program or an organization called the Microcredit Summit that uses a lot of student volunteers and interns. And then more broadly in economic development, more broadly the consulting firm that I was, had a summer job at a consulting firm in college uh, doing on a development project. And that's where I first learned about microcredit. So in, imagine here, but in many large cities, at least in the US, there are consulting firms that have either a practice that does economic development consulting or they're full, fully focused on it. And if you'd like afterwards, I can give you the name of, of a few. Fabulous. Yep. Yep. Um, hi. My name's Suhail, and I'm from Pakistan. I'm delighted to know that you guys are in India, and I'm hoping that you guys will become a Pakistan soon as well. Um, however, the question that I had was that you spoke extensively about providing microfinance and microcredit. However, in countries like India and Pakistan, there's another need that needs to be addressed. The fact that a large number of people are very risk-averse to entrepreneurship. They have a fixed mindset of sticking to a job, even if it's a minimum day job. So is there anything that United, United or maybe your partner organizations have done in order to address this change of mindset? Um, yes and no. Uh, the no part first, um, usually the, the segment of the population that this is targeting are the unsalaried, people who are already doing something. They don't have uh, some kind of salary, so that's kind of the easy one. The bigger one, I think, what's happening, I'm going to take it out of South Asia and take it to Argentina. I was in Argentina about three weeks ago. Argentina, until a little while ago, is the richest country in Latin America. I don't know if there are any Argentines here. Uh, the richest country in Latin America, consider themselves European, rightly so, um, strong economy, and then everybody knows what happened right, a few years ago. Um, and so the very strong, vibrant middle class that had a strong tradition and then recently plunged into an economic crisis. Now the middle class has become very poor, and there was not a history of this type of entrepreneurship like you're describing. And so what we're finding is out of necessity, People are doing this. They're selling shoes or they're doing whatever they can to survive. And they, when it first started, they, view it at, they viewed it as, well, I'm just doing this until I get back on my feet again, until the economy recovers and whatnot. Well, now it's been four or five years, and there's starting, starting to be a structural shift where people are now saying, hmm, this is kind of cool. I'm working for myself. I'm doing okay. starting to grow. And so if our partners are doing anything, it's helping facilitate that and demonstrating to others that this is possible. This is a way a potential way of life, if you will, and you can grow to the level that you, that you want to or, or are capable of. And so that same thing would apply in South Asia. So sort of when I see my neighbor, so I'm going to work every day in the fields and I'm making you know, my 50 rupees a day or less than that, 25 rupees a day. Um, but I see my neighbor, uh, my neighbor's wife maybe, who has, she bought a milk buffalo with some money and she doesn't go into the fields every day and she's making 200 rupees a day huh, that's kind of interesting. I wonder if I could do something. So kind of just by demonstrating the possibility. And yes, we're hoping to go to Pakistan. Yeah. Right. Fabulous. Next one here. Yeah. Hi, my name is Michelle. I'm from China. Um, first of all, I want to thank you for what, have, what you have done. 
for coding uh, and developing this world. My question is, we first started your company in Mexico or in Asia and other countries. Did you ever encounter any resistance from the government, from the local government? And how did you react to these obstacles? Thank you. Thank you. Um, a great question. We would love to do this type of work in China, but your, what your question is getting at is accurate. Not quite possible right now. Um, and we, ha we have encountered government resistance. We generally try to fly under the government radar screen um, and, and do our work from sort of the bottom up. But when it comes to making investments, making an equity investment or even placing debt, often there are restrictions on that, on uh, foreign direct investment or repatriation of capital, things like this. And so what we've done, um, two things, we've taken a very practical approach and when we have to deal with it, we do and we build the best strategy we can, getting access to local, whatever it is, local lawyers, local whatever, that can help guide us through the, the uh, political morass. Um, but we also try to, by the time we hit obstacles, try to have built enough of a, a presence on the ground and have demonstrated enough of our value that we have something to point to and say, look, this is what we're trying to do, and use that as a platform to negotiate our way through whatever troubles come up. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you were saying that there's uh, lots of money lenders already all over the place. Um, how do these people react when, when you show up? Do they cut their rates, or is it no longer possible for them to, to lend money at your rates? Yeah. Um, so they don't love it, <laughs> first of all. Um, very often, the money lenders are suppliers or landlords. It's, it's, it's not sort of just someone with the, you know, hey, Shylock shingle hung outside their 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 uh, their door. Um, very often, someone that the person already has an existing relationship with, and we found that when this these programs first start, they're not happy at all. We are one of our partners in India right now is having some trouble with some some local local politicians that the money lenders have influenced. They've banded together and have influenced the local politicians to try to shut down this lending program because it's threatening their survival. And so, the, yes, you, you hit it on the head. They're threatened by this. Uh, what they'll do often is they'll either try to bring down their prices or try to change their product design somehow to compete, but they, it's difficult for them to. And so often they'll just shift to another segment of the market. You know, if they used to lend to, uh, to fish vendors, then they'll try to do someone else who isn't currently, doesn't currently have other options, other alternatives. Great, great questions. Um, they offer the, the guarantee that they offer is their word. Um, it's, it's a trust-based system, and uh, the coercion, if you will, is based on the, either the social bonds that they have. So if Tina has a loan and I have a loan, and we're co-guaranteeing that, I'm signing for Tina's loan. She's signing for mine. If there's coercion, I'll say, Hey, Tina, you missed your payment. Come on, you got to make your payment or else I'm not going to get my next loan. Um, so there is that kind of pressure. But there's also support. There's a lot of peer support. So if Tina's been sick, and I'll cover her payment for a few weeks. 
knowing that she'll do the same for me when it's time. Um, so it's not traditional. I, I'm, they're not forced to, to, you know, sign away their refrigerator or whatever asset they might have. And they usually don't have those types of assets or their DVD player um, because they don't have assets to start with. So it's based. It's this trust-based system. Um, so the the coercion is frankly their word, and, and it's counterintuitive because of a lot of what we've been taught in formal structure. But fundamentally, people are good and, and trustworthy. Um, and so build, this builds on that fundamental premise and builds in mechanisms and safety mechanisms and support mechanisms to, um, to build on it. But that's, that's fundamentally what is character-based lending. Okay, one more question. This fellow oh. right in the back. Great. So what kind of returns do, do we get or hope to get, and where do we get our capital? Um, and I'll describe quickly sort of our structure. We have a hybrid structure where we have some for-profit entities and not-for-profit entities, non-profit entities. And so that gives us three buckets of financing that we can use to do the type of work I described. We can give grants when, they're, when the programs we work with are non-profits. We can give grants to help start the process, the commercialization process. We can give them loans or debt, quasi-debt, all sorts of variants on debt, and we can take equity positions in the, the company. So the return expectations are different for each of those. Um, on the grants, obviously, no return expectation. On the debt, um, returns are about money market rates. Um, we charge commercial rates to the institution, but the transaction costs to get the money from here to there and back um, take away most of that. So one to four percent on the debt. And then on the equity side, um, returns can be, uh, I guess, formally and publicly we say eight to 11%. They can be in the teens, they can be higher. Um, this, since this is a, a growth play, if you can imagine if you bought 20% of that company that I described when they had 10,000 clients, grew them to 120,000 clients and you did an exit and you owned uh, just an, you know 20% of the company, there's pretty substantial returns that you can expect there. So you can see how that would work. And our, our funding, our capital, comes mostly from um, families, high, high net worth families, wealthy individuals in the U.S., in Canada, in Europe, who, like I described earlier, have or, or see this as a business opportunity with a social impact, so a social investor type, um, who see the commercial promise and the, and the investment side of this, but also understand that it's doing good in the world. Great. So. so, before we officially say thank you. Yes. I want you to just look around this room and see that we have faces from people all over the world. Yes, I noticed that. You are having a big impact. I mean, and I think everybody here is going to go back and tell their friends and colleagues about all the cool things you're doing. I also want, before we say thank you, to uh, let you know that this is the first of many fabulous talks. Next week, we have Evan Williams, who is the president and founder of Odeo, that is a podcasting company. And in fact, just to let you know, uh, inspired by Evan and by Odeo, we are podcasting all of the ETL lectures this year. <laughs> and in fact, the first one is this one. I forgot to mention Perfect. it. Perfect. So if you go to uh, several of the websites, we'll be happy to let you know. You'll be able to get the podcast as this as well. So